Podcasts on WLRN are funded in part by Make-A-Wish Southern Florida, whose own podcast, World of Wishes, features inspiring, uplifting, and memorable stories from wish kids, their families, medical professionals, and more. You can listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. Thanks for listening to Public Radio. I'm Tom Hudson. And I'm Jessica Bakeman. More than 27,000 students in South Florida have been missing from public school classrooms and screens. Most of those students are still getting an education. They may have enrolled in a private school or started homeschool or moved out of state. Still, thousands of students haven't shown up in school or online for reasons we don't fully understand. Yeah, they may have never been registered for school, or they withdrew from classes during this pandemic, or they've stopped showing up for school. Miami-Dade County Public Schools Superintendent Alberto Carvalho explained efforts to find these students to a state legislative subcommittee last week. We ourselves have gone into the deep south, into the rural areas of Miami-Dade, to find students who are literally living uh, on migrant fields uh, by the dozens. Altogether, these missing 27,000 students in South Florida represent more than a quarter of a billion dollars uh, in state taxpayer money sent to South Florida public school districts, even though they're not enrolled. That's because the state decided to fund schools based on enrollment counts from before the pandemic. But it seems only for this school year. The Florida House Speaker sent a letter to Florida public school superintendents earlier this month warning that next year's education spending will be based on, quote, actual enrollment. So if these missing students don't return, schools could get less money. The four superintendents of South Florida's public school districts are with us today for this special sunshine economy. This program is part of our reporting project, Class of COVID-19, an education crisis for Florida's vulnerable students. To find all of that reporting and to sign up for our newsletter, visit classofcovid.org. And be sure to catch our TV special on WLRN television Wednesday night at 7. Let's begin with the largest public school district in Florida, the Miami-Dade County Public School District, and Superintendent Alberto Carvalho is with us on the Sunshine Economy. Superintendent, those missing students, 10,000 is the official number. How many of those students have just not shown up to school in Miami-Dade this year? Uh, Good morning, Tom. Good morning, uh, Jessica and my fellow uh, superintendents. So out of the roughly 10,006 students uh, that... uh, that from last year to this year left the school system, approximately 78% of them uh, are actually accounted for. And and they went into um, counties outside of Miami-Dade. They left the county altogether. Some left the country. And uh, a fair number enrolled in private schools. So that leaves us, quite frankly, with about uh, 1,000, a little over 1,000 students that currently are truly unaccounted for. At the beginning of the year, that number was higher, it was around 1,700 students. But as a function of the efforts that we deployed, uh, as I said earlier, going into the south, into the west, uh, knocking on doors, collaborating with Miami-Dade's housing authority, as a lot of these families uh, were depending on subsidized housing, we've been able to return back to the schoolhouse uh, seven to 800 of those uh, 1,700 missing students. So right now, truly unaccounted for unengaged students about 1,000. And just anecdotally, Mm -hmm. on the basis of conversations we've had with their former neighbors, 
uh, when we did wellness checks, knocked on the door with the assistance of our social workers and police uh, officers, many of them uh, said that they left the county, they don't know where they are, and some actually left the country altogether. And I know it's been a similar situation in Broward County, the second largest school district in the state. We also have Broward County Superintendent Robert Renzi along with us. Our class of COVID-19 project includes a story on the efforts of Broward County for uh, finding these missing students. And I know just from our reporting that the number of students who were not or who had not shown up to classes in person or online since March was about 1,000 in December and was down to about 800 in February. So, Superintendent Runcy, can you tell us about how your district is going about trying to track these students down? Good morning. In a similar fashion, um, our social workers, our counselors, our school administrators, um, they're using every vehicle that they have. Um, phone calls, emails, um, friends of students and, and families. Um, we have folks even going door to door um, to identify um, students who uh, we know have not uh, connected or engaged at all. Um, so it's, it's, you know, as we say, it's an all hands on deck moment for us to identify these students, um, track them down. Um, I know in Broward County, we have over 5,000 homeless students. Um, so we actually have a uh, department and staff that really tries to track down and support those students to make sure um, that they're being um, connected and engaged with us as well. Um, so, you know, our, our data shows that um, enrollment uh, based on projection, we're down about 8,400. Uh, that's somewhere close to 10% of the state. We represent about 10% of the state student enrollment. Um, overall, as you know, the state's um, down about 90,000 students. It's primarily in the um, kindergarten and first grade uh, that we're seeing that and um, hopefully as we start the new school year we will see some of that being recovered um, and then we'll be able to make a final determination of you know how many students have gone to private charter um, or elected homeschool or as indicated may have just moved out of the county. Yeah. Superintendent Runcie, do, do you have a, a more refined number of that 8,400 total students missing similar to Superintendent Carvalho? Have you been able to kind of focus in on what number of students are truly missing are in the county, but are simply not attending Broward County schools or any schools? No, we, we don't have that number uh, finalized yet at the moment, but we're, you know, we continue to work through that. Uh, but I, I couldn't tell you exactly uh, the breakdown of the 8,400 um, where, where they where they are at the moment. Uh, Superintendent Fenoy is with us as well, uh, uh, the superintendent of uh, Palm Beach County Schools, Donald Fenoy. Uh, how about the missing students in Palm Beach County? Have you been able to refine that number down, Superintendent Fenoy, to how many students are in Palm Beach County still living in the county uh, and eligible? to go to public school, but are, are not showing up in the classroom or online. Yeah, you know, first of all, good morning to, to all my colleagues that weren't available. Um, so I, we, we started the, the lost count around 7,000 kids. Um, and since um, October, we've been able to whittle that number down to about 3,500. What, we what we've determined recently after sending out, deploying some of the same resources that um, my friends to the South have, we were at right around 1,500 kids that are just completely unaccounted for. Uh, we have been able to see some early indicators that some families that chose other private virtual options and even some charter schools 
those schools have not contacted us to get their transcripts. And so that usually is our, is our key indicator to determine where kids have gone. Uh, but right now we're still working on about 1500 kids. And these numbers, you know, just to kind of think through them a little bit, you know, 1500, 1800, you know, they sound relatively small when you think about how many students are in schools in South Florida, but we're also talking about this so matter of factly, and it, it is really truly so alarming that this number of students is out there and we just don't know if they're getting what they need and you know what the, the future is gonna look like for them. Um, in the Florida Keys, Monroe County, obviously it's a much smaller district than Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach. Um, Superintendent Teresa Axford from that district is with us. Can you tell us what the situation is with missing students in the Keys? And Superintendent Axford, and can you please unmute yourself because yeah. I'm not sure if we're hearing you. Yes, I'm One very of the concerned. trials of working from home. Yes, I'm very concerned for my... I'm very concerned for my colleagues and I can identify with this problem. But you know, we have 8,735 kids in the Keys in total. So um, we're very fortunate that, you know, we've been able to reduce our numbers down to, to seven students that we can't track. But I had many problems in the early part of the year uh, getting kids, students to come back to school. Uh, and so we did all those things uh, with counselors, administrators, making phone calls, social workers, and uh, we just kept at it until students came back to school. But we are having other issues in the Keys. For instance, our numbers in kindergarten and first grade are uh, down. So, uh, you know, it's uh, people have left the Keys but certainly not at the rate that uh, the other superintendents are talking about. Well, thank you for that. And we'll definitely be speaking with each of you about kindergartners and preschoolers and that situation a little bit later in the program. Superintendent Carvalho, I want to come back to you for a second. We heard your comments earlier in the program to state lawmakers about, you know, finding kids living by the dozens in migrant fields in South Dade. In our class of COVID-19 project, we've reported on how hard it's become to find the children of migrant farm workers and convince them to enroll in school. Uh, would you say that these are among the most vulnerable groups of students in the district right now? And, you know, what specific issues are they facing that other students may not face? I really, truly believe that, in fact, these are the most fragile uh, of the students that we have because they have a compound effect of so many gaps uh, simultaneously, you know, converging upon them. They are poor. They are English language learners. Uh, most of them, most of them lack uh, the familiar support that many other students benefit from. They are home insecure, and they certainly deal with food insecurity. And on top of that, uh, they deal uh, alongside their guardian with constant pressure, specific their instability regarding their immigration status. And uh, you put mm -hmm. all of those elements together, you really have, <clears throat> you really have a perfect storm that is still disturbing uh, to the well-being of children. So they are dealing with social, emotional issues. They're dealing with mental issues on top of uh, the academic regression that every single child or many children have suffered through as a result of the COVID crisis. So these are, um, these are the most vulnerable 
And uh, these are the kids, I keep saying, that even before the COVID crisis, they were already in a deep crisis. It just has gotten deeper, mm -hmm. darker, and much more difficult. Superintendent Fenoy and Palm Beach County, your district also includes some agricultural areas, the, the glades. Um, how are you handling uh, that situation? Are you seeing the same sort of perfect storm that Super Superintendent Carvalho described? Yeah, I would argue we are. I think, you know, you know, the good news is recently we've been able to, the governor's office in, in great partnerships with um, great community members like Ann Quambo and have been able to get us vaccines out of that community, which have allowed us to really encourage our employees that are 65 in order to get a vaccine to help with getting them back in school. But truly on the academic side, we've had, you know, many issues with children of gaps in our rural communities. And so, but I will say this, our early data for those kids that we are able to be in touch with, uh, we're working that those teams are working diligently to bring those kids up to speed, but it's gonna be years, um, truly years uh, to get those kids caught up um, based on the realities of the pandemic. For the uh, handful mm -hmm. of students still missing in Monroe County to the uh, thousands uh, missing perhaps in Broward County, Superintendent Runcie, what are the explanations that you're hearing from families, caregivers, uh, who are not sending their children to school or having them log on to uh, to virtual school? Uh, there's a huge range of things that we hear. Um, one, um, you have uh, students who are in multi-generational um, families, so there's still uh, concern there. Um, there are also families who've actually um, adapted and found that the e-learning model actually gives them uh, the flexibility uh, that they need. Um, you know, there are others that say, you know, they will not send their kids to school until, you know, a vaccine's available and the, um, the pandemic uh, totally subsides. So it's a huge range. Um, the, the big concern we have is that, um, you know, at the end of the second uh, semester we did, uh, you know, some assessment of where our students are uh, based a lot of it on first uh, marking period uh, outcomes. And we found over 58,000 students who uh, we believe are making adequate academic progress. Uh, we noted that in a couple statistics, which I think you reported here, but a number of students who have received um, F grades had gone up from 4% to over 11%. The number of uh, habitually truant students increased from last year from 1,700 to over 8,200. Those are really alarming um, things for us. So we made a really big push um, to make sure that those students would be back in school. And at the start of the second semester, uh, we've seen so far um, over a 50% increase in the number of students who have returned for in-person. Um, of those students who were struggling uh, academically not making adequate uh, progress. Uh, we've been able to get about 60% of those, I believe, are back uh, for in-person, so we continue to work through it. Uh, we believe it's also a major equity issue. 80% um, of those students are, are, are Black and Hispanic. 24% uh, were students with disabilities, and over 30% of them were English language learners, and nearly 70% were low-income. So. Uh, we have to do what we need to to make sure um, that these students are in the best environment where they're actually learning and getting services and supports that they need in order to be successful. 
And I believe Broward is, um, <clears throat> it's unique or, or um, unusual among the state in having a, a lower number of students who are returning. I know initially it was about a quarter of students returned to school while the rest were learning online. And I think now it's closer to about 40%. So you're still looking at half of the district students are actually in the classroom. And Superintendent Runcie, you mentioned habitual truancy, you know, which is, you know, students not going to school, I believe, the way your district uh, defines that is 15 absences, unexcused absences. Um, and truancy is something that the, yeah, so truancy is something the legislature is talking about right now when they're discussing this this issue of missing students, saying that maybe there should be harsh penalties for parents who aren't sending their kids to school and even jail time. I'm curious, you know, from an educator's perspective, what, what you all think of that, uh, Superintendent Axford, what's, what's your take? Well, I think that we need to get through this crisis before we start to give penalties to people. I mean, uh, families are under uh, a lot of duress for various reasons. So um, I think, of, of course, you know, we want students back in school uh, and we want them attending regularly. Uh, but I think to uh, enforce some kind of harsh penalty at this time would, would be an error. I think we need to use all of our other uh, techniques to engage students in school besides something like that. Uh, Superintendent, stick with us. We've got a lot more to talk about here on the special edition of the Sunshine Economy with the quartet of public school leaders in South Florida, stretching from Key West up to the Palm Beaches. Still to come on our program, the missing education and missing money if the students don't return. That's next. Welcome back to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Hudson. And I'm Jessica Bakeman. We're back with this special Class of COVID-19 Sunshine Economy to explore the whole series from Florida Public Media on how the pandemic has affected education in Florida. Visit classofcovid.org. There you can listen to our radio special, you can read the stories, and sign up for our newsletter. And check back next week, or actually later this week, for our upcoming television program. That's classofcovid.org. The TV program on WLRN Television on Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Statewide, 88,000 public school students are not in class or studying online. Student enrollment is a cornerstone of how public schools are paid for in Florida, and that drop in enrollment would have cost public school districts hundreds of millions of dollars. We've spent $700 million educating students that don't exist. That's Republican Randy Fine. He chairs the K-12 Appropriations Subcommittee in the Florida House. Public schools in Florida haven't lost that money yet. So far during the pandemic, schools have been able to use enrollment figures from before COVID-19. But that likely will not be the case next year, as lawmakers craft their education spending plan over the next two months. The legislative session starts next week. This is House Speaker Republican Chris Sprouls last week. From a moral obligation to make sure that those kids have an opportunity to learn, as well as from a budgetary standpoint, as we build our K-12 budget, we need to be as accurate as humanly possible about how many kids we can expect to come back. The four public school superintendents in South Florida are still with us to talk about this. And, you know, back in October, both Miami-Dade and Broward, the two largest school districts in the state, 
uh, agreed, the school boards agreed to open school buildings sooner than they planned because state officials were threatening to pay those districts for only the students they actually had in schools, not these missing kids we've been talking about. Both districts put that potential price tag at the time at tens of millions of dollars. I'm curious if that's what your projections are looking like this year, what we can start with uh, Superintendent Alberto Carvalho in Miami-Dade. Do you have a sense of how much money you're looking at potentially losing because of these lost students for next school year? We do. In fact, uh, that was one of the elements that was discussed at the uh, pre-K-12 subcommittee of the House uh, meeting last week. Uh, The type of support, financial support, that we obtained from the state this year um, was around uh, $80 million. And if, in fact, uh, these students, the totality of the decline of students from last year uh, to this year, do not return to Miami-Dade County Public Schools, uh, in the um, next school year, we could be looking at a at a, at a draconian uh, cut in terms of school funding around eighty million dollars. Uh, we benefited. And Superintendent Runcie and Broward, uh, what, I'm sorry to interrupt. Superintendent Runcie and Broward, what's that number for you guys that you're looking at? Yeah, so if the number would be somewhere around ninety million dollars if we were if we recovered none of the eighty four hundred students that were out there. And Superintendent Carvalho just said we'd be looking at draconian cuts. And I just wanted to kind of dig into this a little bit more because I think that, um, you know, these this drop in money will be likely framed as a cut. But I don't think that the legislature would see it that way. There's, they would see it as, you know, we're paying for the number of students who are actually in schools. And if there are fewer students in schools, then that would mean that school districts would get less money. Um, you know, what do, what's your take on that, Superintendent Fenoy? Do you see the potential loss as a cut? And, and what would that number be for Palm Beach? Well, absolutely, it would be a cut. I think in our context, if we were not held harmless, it would have been approximately around $50 million. Um, and I think the reality of it is, you know, Palm Beach, Broward, Dade, we're the biggest employers in our districts. And so, you know, you want to talk about a snowball effect if we would have had to really adjust and start laying off employees to account for that 50, in our context, $50 million shortfall, it would have, it would have had a ripple effect in our whole community. And what about in the key superintendent Axford? Do you, do you have a sense of how much money you could lose? Uh, I guess you only have seven students uh, missing or is it going to be significant there in, in Monroe County? Oh, I think you might be muted again. It is not. It is. Um, it's going to be significant in that, you know, we are down students. So there's families who have left the keys. Uh, so, uh, you know, we're looking at possibly uh, around seven million dollars uh, in, in reduction. But, you know, that's because the students are not here. And uh, we, we assume that they've left the keys. We don't know if family is going to come back or not, but we're, we're hopeful that they will. Uh, uh, Superintendent Expert in the Keys, what kind of contingency plans are you making now in terms of staffing for the next school year based upon the uncertainty of those millions of dollars and the impact on, on your budget? Well, we're, uh, we're looking at, we're, uh, we're planning for a 3% reduction. I mean, that's our first uh, step out. A 3% and reduction of staff? Yes, and across the board, uh, we're looking at every program and we're figuring out, you know, where we're going to make those cuts. 
So for us, uh, a 3% reduction is, is still pretty dramatic. And Superintendent Fenoy, let's go from the Keys up to the Palm Beaches. How about planning purposes now for your administration looking at the 21-22 school year? Yeah, so planning is um, it's a challenge. You know, you know, so much of what governed us this year were executive orders. And so as many of those executive orders potentially run out in, in, in late June. And so the question, so we're, we're preparing for a sort of worst case scenario. I mean, that's one thing we learned from last year. There's a lot of things we just didn't know when we were getting ready for school this year. So we know a lot more and we're, you know, many of us are looking at, I'm reorganizing, uh, really making sure that we're aligned and perfectly to deal with the realities that are gonna face us in the future. Yeah, Superintendent uh, uh, Runcie, uh, you're uh, curious about a clarification here to make sure that when we're talking about the students, enrolled students versus projected students, we're looking at, you know, your projections for next year to make those make those budget decisions that you need to make in the in the months ahead for that budget, as well as for the state legislature and lawmakers in the next two months to look at those projected student enrollment figures. Yeah. So when we talked um, earlier, we we're talking about um, the the drops, there's one, students who are enrolled who haven't been engaged, that's the lower number around a thousand or so that we talked about. Mm -hmm. But when you look at our projections that we started with this year, um, that's the 8,400 number. Right. So those are very different uh, numbers that we're looking at. So I just wanted to make sure that we clarified what that is. Right. Uh, so when you're looking forward into projections for the next budget cycle, uh, yeah. what what does what are those implications of those missing students who, who may not show up or, or just are uncertain about their fate beginning next fall? Uh, the implications are um, significant and potentially dire if we see an enrollment drop of 10%. Um, I have, uh, you know, equated that to the equivalent of closing an entire school zone. That's the high school, the feeder middle school, and the elementary. And that means every, you know, position, uh, you know, from teachers to custodians to bus drivers that are connected with that. Um, so that is a huge um, challenge for us as we look at trying to stabilize this district. Uh, the pandemic and the impact of it will still linger into next year. And so we need to continue to work through it. We spent over $62 million by the end of the first semester on our preparedness and response to the pandemic, um, including everything from personal protective equipment, uh, putting nurses in every school, yeah. custodial cleaning, technology, et cetera. Superintendent Runcie, that, that kind of uh, uh, closing a school zone, if the projected enrollment uh, is such that it leads to the loss of tens of millions of dollars, what, what kind of personnel impact does that mean on your staffing? In other words, uh, what kind of layoffs could that entail for Broward County Public Schools? Yeah, I mean, it, it, our goal always is to do everything that we possibly can to um, protect the staff, uh, to protect our schools and the resources around them. Uh, but um, you're looking, again, at significant uh, impacts to um, the teaching force, um, custodians, mm -hmm. uh, support staff, administrative staff, everything that's connected to that volume of, of, of number of students. Uh, there would be uh, impacts. We would do everything in our power to minimize it, but there's only so much you can do uh, when you have that kind of um, loss. And you're, you know, you're talking eighty, potentially eighty million dollars. Yeah. Would that um, number in the thousands of potential layoffs, Superintendent Runcie? 
I, I would have, let me just put it this way. We have somewhere close to 30,000 uh, employees. Right. Um, so yeah, you're looking at hundreds of uh, potentially. Now, you know, I don't want to get folks alarmed. It's premature at this point, but that's the worst case scenario. Yeah. And we've got to do everything that we can working with the legislature, uh, hoping to get support from the federal government. Um, and continue to advocate for the needs that we have in our districts. As you work toward that uh, clarity, uh, Superintendent Runcie, what what do you need? Uh, what does your school board need to make those decisions? We're certainly going to need to um, understand uh, where the legislature um, is going to net out relative to um, enrollment, as we discussed earlier. Uh, will we have an opportunity to be held harmless to some degree uh, for some of this loss as we need to make significant investments to continue to make our schools safe, um, to provide a lot of interventions to students who have um, fallen um, behind? Um, there's just a lot of work to do above and beyond what we would normally do. Uh, as you know, all of our districts are preparing for significant summer school operations and investments there. Um, those are resources uh, that we're, we're going to need um, in order to maintain uh, the level of uh, education we know that our kids and our communities deserve. Well, and I think we may have Superintendent Carvalho from Miami-Dade back. We were wanting to hear from you, Superintendent Carvalho, about the potential worst-case scenario as far as layoffs or um, staffing cuts that would result uh, from these draconian cuts, as you put them, for next school year. When I use the word draconian, it's in terms of the severity of the potential cut from Tallahassee, and uh, certainly 80 to $85 million, that is a severe potential reduction. Uh, but uh, I, at this point, do not anticipate um, a significant impact on educational programs, school site programs, or the workforce. And I'll tell you why. Uh, for the better part uh, of the year that we've lived through, we anticipated that this may have been a potential outcome. And we've imposed uh, severe uh, expenditure restrictions, hiring freezes, hmm. uh, to ensure that we begin to build um, a reserve for what would potentially be a draconian reduction. Now, we besides hiring help. freezes, what other expenditure reductions have you imposed? Uh, pri well, primarily recurring expenditures associated with personnel, uh, but also the procurement of non-essential goods. Uh, so beyond, quite frankly, technology, PPE, disinfecting materials, that which is essential, uh, we have put in some uh, significant curtailing uh, mechanisms uh, to prevent uh, the expenditures from keep from flowing, uh, thus building a year-end balance to accommodate the potential impact. But that alone will not be sufficient. Uh, we need a couple of things. Number one, uh, we need the, the state legislative body uh, to maintain the base student allocation uh, at least flat or increasing it. We need uh, the funding compression, which benefited the South Florida community, uh, to be um, continued. This is an offset to the district cost differential, which went away back in 2004 mm -hmm. five. So you're and talking about the school funding formula, changes correct, to the formula. Correct. And most importantly, we need to allow the required local effort millage, which is the most important millage levied locally, to stay flat to ensure that the state does not unnecessarily reduce its revenue. The governor's budget actually, for the first time in a yeah. number of years, 
allows the required local effort millage to stay flat. And that is appropriate, particularly yeah. when, you know, leading to our show, uh, there was a report in WLRN that said that the median price of homes in the South Florida community, particularly Miami-Dade, established a, you know, fifth month of record level right. in a row. So there has to be some degree of benefit towards public education. That local if those effort... elements are preserved, then I think in addition to federal stimulus money, which provides some degree of protection, we may in fact be able to survive this year without the draconian reduction resulting in draconian impacts to the classroom or the workforce. That local required effort is uh, the local property taxes, which is a big part of funding for public schools. About 47% of the overall uh, funding for public schools in Florida comes from that local effort. And that local required effort, keeping that millage rate steady, allows for additional funds to be collected as property values rise, as uh, Superintendent Carvalho mentioned. Uh, gentlemen and uh, 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 ma'am, we've got to take a quick break. The four superintendents of uh, Public schools in South Florida are with us here on the Sunshine Economy. Still to come, we'll re-examine how public schools are paid for. That's next. Stick with us. We're back on the Sunshine Economy here on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. And I'm Jessica Bakeman. For this special class of COVID-19 episode of the Sunshine Economy, we're talking with leaders of the four pub public school districts in South Florida about how the pandemic has affected their finances, their students, and their teachers. For the whole series and to sign up for our newsletter, visit classofcovid.org. Public education makes up uh, the second largest slice of state government spending, about $27 billion. For kindergarten through 12th grade public schools, more than half of their main funding source comes from state taxes. Those dollars are primarily handed out based upon how many students are attending school. The pandemic, as we've been talking about, has paused that calculation, kept it at last year's pre-pandemic enrollment, leading some lawmakers to question if this represents the beginning of a change in how public schools are paid for. Randy Fine is the Republican chairman of the Florida House K-12 Education Appropriations Committee, which recommends school spending. Are we going to continue this fundamental shift in how we fund education from based on school enrollment to something else? And that is actually the question we would love to put to our superintendents who are joining us here from South Florida. Uh, Randy Fine and, and legislative leaders want to return to funding schools based on enrollment. And I'm wondering, you know, has this pandemic exposed a fundamental flaw in how schools are funded in Florida? If we had to do this major shift to get through a pandemic, should something other than enrollment be the primary factor going forward? Let's start with Superintendent Donald Fenoy in Palm Beach County. You know, that's a that's a hard question. Um, you know, because this is sort of a forced innovation on us during the pandemic, um, I haven't put a whole lot of thought into changing the formula. I would say though that one of the challenges that we have is the fact that so many of our families are choosing virtual. And you know, part of the question is if if these families still want this, is there a way that we can get the funding to maintain our current levels of service moving forward? Because currently if it wasn't for the executive orders, we would have lost some of that revenue for those families staying home. So I do think it's, we should be having a, a, a healthy conversation around um, if we have to maintain or should we maintain some of this distance learning, 
uh, for those families who for next year may not be comfortable coming back into brick and mortar. Right. And as you mentioned, you know, we were talking about the potential losses of revenue for enrollment. Um, but there was also that additional question of whether, you know, school districts were going to lose funding because students who are taking classes online, you know, typically virtual students are, are funded at a lower, co- you know, per pupil um, amount of money because uh, I, theoretically they're less expensive to educate. But of course, during this pandemic, students have been coming in and out of virtual learning, changing their minds all that sort of thing. Um, so uh, Superintendent Runcie in Broward, do you foresee or, or hope for a, a major change in how schools are funded in Florida? Yeah, you know, I, I think what um, uh, Donald just mentioned, which is something we've talked about is, you know, decoupling seat time from funding um, to allow greater flexibility and innovation in school districts. I think that's something. And seat that time we, means just literally the amount of time a student is sitting in a seat in a classroom. That's correct. Uh, we believe it should really be based on funding and competency and not necessarily attached to a, a school building, um, you know, if necessary, because there there is a need out there for that type of flexibility and parents and families in some cases I've had a taste of that and we'll probably want to continue that. The other thing I would say is that the funding for the state, the per people funding in Florida, as we know, is substantially below the national average. Um, so there's got to be some improvement there as well. And then finally, I would say that um, we know that there's been a significant impact um, to the teacher pipeline and the number of um, candidates that you know we continue to see. Um, as that goes down each year, uh, we have to make uh, the teaching profession far more attractive. Mm-hmm. And part of that is going to require, I, I think, some significant structural changes in compensation for teachers mm-hmm. as well. Pre-pandemic, I know that all four uh, school districts uh, uh, had the support of their communities to uh, increase dollars designed and aimed for uh, teacher retention and uh, higher uh, minimum teacher salaries. Superintendent Carvalho in Miami-Dade, is there a glide path on state school funding to incorporate more performance-based funding as opposed to attendance or enrollment-based funding? I don't think that uh, immediately that will be the case, but I think that the state will examine different models that uh, may at some point lead to that. I think at this point, considering um, the variability of conditions across the state because of, uh, quite frankly, different levels of positivity, uh, different levels of engagement, um, and different levels, uh, percentages of students uh, learning virtually versus Mm -hmm. in the schoolhouse varying from district to district. I think it would be quite dangerous to uh, make that shift now, but I agree with my colleagues. I think uh, Superintendent Runcie touched on something very important. I've been a strong advocate uh, in terms of modifying uh, the funding formula that relies so much on uh, mandatory seat time, actually counting minutes, hours that students must be in the seat for funding. What this uh, crisis has taught us is that flexibility in terms of the modality must be taken into account. But at the same time, we cannot forget the other elements, the cost factors, the multipliers, that must continue to be a feature in any funding formula. What are some of those? uh, Poverty, English language limitation, Hmm. uh, the regional cost living of a community. Uh, In Miami-Dade, the the cost of living is 
you know, uh, depending on the year, six to eight percent higher than the national than the state average. So those are cost multipliers that must yeah. be incorporated into the funding formula uh, for it to be fair and equitable, so that the buying power of educational services hmm. uh, is fairly consistent across the state. But I, I suspect that at least for this incoming year. Uh, the funding formula will st still be largely based on FTE, meaning the count of full-time equivalent. Yeah, uh, yeah. Considering still, as I said, yeah. some cost factors, yeah. multipliers like the ones I described. You, you, one of those was the cost of living. Let me put that to uh, Superintendent Axford in Monroe County, uh, a high cost of living district, uh, but a district with its own unique geographic challenges stretched out on the island chain, relatively small. Uh, a resident population, but a very large and significant dependence on visitors, which have been impacted during this pandemic. Uh, Superintendent Axford, what 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 kind of debate, what kind of conversation are you hearing in terms of the potential change or or I guess uh, um, consideration about how public schools are funded and the potential impact in Monroe County? Well, you know, Mon Monroe is very interesting because we receive 82% um, of our funding from local property taxes uh, and uh, the other 17, 18% comes from the state. So um, we're largely funded uh, locally. And, um, you know, I agree with my colleagues. Uh, we have 370 students in our virtual program this year, and uh, that's up from about 10 last year. And I'm receiving full funding for those uh, students. So, you know, I'm hoping that uh, the state uh, really does continue to fund FTE. I think that we're going to have to make major changes in delivery of services, though, because I think some parents are going to continue uh, to want to pursue uh, virtual programs. And, and so, you know, a small change, small things impact Monroe County in very large ways. Yeah. So those 370 students would be significant for us. And uh, so that's why we're looking at uh, decreases across all of our programs, uh, really being very careful about any spending that is going on now, trying to uh, cash away funds so that we can withstand whatever happens uh, in terms of how our budget is affected next yeah. year. Uh, stick with us, superintendents. We're going to take uh, our last quick time out here on the Sunshine Economy. We'll be back speaking with the four public school superintendents in South Florida after this. We're back on the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. And I'm Jessica Bakeman. Today we are talking with the leaders of South Florida's public school districts. Talking about missing students, talking about the potential uh, for funding implications, and talking about what the next school year may look like. Donald Fenoy is the superintendent of Palm Beach County Public Schools. And Superintendent Fenoy, you told a House uh, subcommittee last week that you're expecting Palm Beach County Public Schools to experience the largest ever kindergarten class next year. Where are those students coming from? <laughs> well, a lot of those students are coming from home just like mine. Um, you know, we, we decided as a family, I have two children, one who started brick and mortar on the first day back in September. And this year was going to be the first year for my daughter to go to kindergarten, and we decided to keep her out for a year. 
Uh, we can correlate that just to the number of parents who have returned home from the workforce. We have noticed that our kindergarten numbers were and first grade numbers were exceptionally low. And as we started sort of this registration process, we're seeing a major uptick in potentially children coming back in brick and mortar in K-1 to next year. And I'm really curious about the, you know, short and long-term implications of that, you know, with students taking preschool and kindergarten potentially, you know, online and what they could potentially lose across the their education as far as those fundamental skills like reading. Um, Superintendent uh, Carvalho in Miami-Dade County, what do you think is going to happen with those students, uh, you know, who've kind of sat out for kindergarten? I, I think that uh, those students that set out for kindergarten is really, truly a parental decision. Uh, they have the option, the ability to do that legally. And uh, quite frankly, that's one of the biggest unknowns for all of us is uh, how will parents going into this next school year will treat that situation? Will community conditions continue to improve uh, that reassure parents about the safe uh, environment that schools create, which I believe is safe to begin with? Uh, will the dissemination of the vaccines, right, uh, be aggressive enough uh, to ensure that frontline essential uh, educators as, as workers are provided those vaccines? Will that send another reinforcing positive message to those parents? So I think that there are a number of elements at play here. And then let's not forget, uh, there are other unknowns. So. Uh, we know that the state is emphasizing additional funding for the Florida Empowerment Scholarship, which is basically a voucher, which uh, previously required that students first attend a public school prior to taking advantage of this mm-hmm. type of voucher. Mm-hmm. Moving to the future, that's no longer a requirement. So again, there's a, a level of uncertainty about students that ordinarily uh, would, uh, would coming to the public school system but now you cannot. And whether you might see that. those starting in a private school instead with those vouchers. And Superintendent Runcie, you mentioned um, summer school earlier and, and those plans that you're making to try to help students, you know, make up for what they have lost. I'm curious if you're making those plans for kindergartners or incoming first graders to, you know, get that school time before they, you know, maybe start in person for the first time. Uh, yes, we absolutely are. That's a big part of the summer work. Uh, we're doing some extensive outreach to our early learners uh, to make sure that they're aware of the opportunities that we're going to be providing this summer. So, yes, absolutely. That's a big, big part of it. And Superintendent Axford in Monroe County, you mentioned earlier you were planning on a 3% reduction. If if you're expecting maybe a bulge in kindergarten or first graders, how how are you balancing those two pressures? Well, we're not sure yet what's going to happen with our um, our kindergarten and first grade class. That's where we have seen our our uh, most dramatic uh, reductions. Uh, we've had a very uh, uh, strong early literacy program with bolstering up our VPK for the past uh, couple of years, and so we're going to do some uh, summer boost programs, and we we want to. Uh, bring those kids in this summer and help them uh, be ready for uh, uh, kindergarten in grade one. And so um, I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, students are going to return and we're going to see them starting this summer. Well, superintendents, uh, we want to thank you, uh, each of you, for spending so much time with us here on WLRN for this community conversation. The superintendents 
of the four public school districts in South Florida. Alberto Carvalho, the superintendent of Miami-Dade County Public Schools. Robert Runcy, the superintendent of Broward County Public Schools. Donald Fenoy, the superintendent of Palm Beach Schools. And Theresa Axford, the superintendent at Monroe County Schools. To all four of you, thank you so much for your time and for your comments here today. Uh, it is a, a special Sunshine Economy here on uh, WLRN as part of our Class of COVID-19 project. And we've got a lot more stories that you can see, hear, and read about at classofcovid.org. And even watch because we have a television program that will be on WRN TV Wednesday at 7. And those TV packages and then the full TV hour will also be at classofcovid.org. And you can find the uh, the uh, Class of COVID television program. It will air on WLRN television, channel 17, Wednesday night, this coming Wednesday night at 7 p.m. And uh, again, be sure to follow WLRN on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. There is additional Class of COVID-19 material that you'll find on our uh, uh, social media and, of course, the website. Peter Meritz is our technical director. We had booking help this week from Denise Royal and Andrea Perdomo. I'm Jessica Bakeman. And I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening and supporting Public Radio. Podcasts on WLRN are funded in part by Make-A-Wish Southern Florida, whose own podcast, World of Wishes, features inspiring, uplifting, and memorable stories from wish kids, their families, medical professionals, and more. You can listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.